We tend to not take action when we find our relationships are not doing well. And I think that there's like a tension between truths. The things that we care about, we make time for, except, and this is the the sort of paradox, the things that we really care about are often so overwhelming and scary that we often avoid them. And so the tension between those two things often causes us not to attend to our relationship in the moment. We, we instead say, I'll, I'll do it when it gets easier. But of course, it's like not opening your bills. It doesn't get easier. It gets more and more overwhelming. Hey, everyone. Welcome to or back to the Growth Equation podcast. I'm your host, Brad Stahlberg. Normally, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Steve Magnus, but he is out today for arguably the best reason there is. Steve and his wife, Hillary, welcomed their baby girl, Hazley Grace, into the world. So Steve is hopefully taking a nap right now. But uh, I'm going to be covering the podcast today. But the good news is I'm not covering it alone. So with me, I've got Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn. And for those that are not familiar with Yael's work, she is a clinical therapist who specializes in relationships. She is also on faculty at Brown University. So she wears two hats. One is a practitioner in the clinic. The other is a research psychologist. And Yael has recently teamed up with The Growth Equation to offer her own newsletter called Relational on the art, science, and practice of intimate bonds, connections, and relationships. So if you aren't yet signed up for Yael's newsletter, Relational, highly recommend it. I have the good fortune of reading these before they go out, and they have certainly helped me navigate my own intimate relationships, both with my wife, Caitlin, but also with colleagues, with friends, with other family members. It really is a wonderful newsletter. So head over to the show notes if you're not subscribed. Make sure you subscribe. If you're unsure whether or not to subscribe, my guess is after listening to this conversation, that question will answer itself. Yeah, it's so good to see you. Welcome back to the Growth Equation Podcast. How are you today? I'm good. I'm super excited to chat with you today about all things relationships, and I'm always excited to chat with you folks at the Growth Equation. So I think a good starting point is a couple weeks ago, you wrote in your new newsletter, Relational, that affairs don't always have to be the end of relationships, and sometimes they are. But other times, it is a disruption that puts out into the open all the problems that were pushed into the closet and exposes them. And couples can use that as a catalyst for a lot of healing. And my question is, how do we do that healing before there's a betrayal like an affair? Because I think it certainly seems like it would be a lot less painful not to have to go through something like an affair to open up a relationship for not even healing if it's broken, but just for the productive work to to make it stick together. So maybe a better way to put it is, is there such a thing as preventative kind of work on relationships in a therapeutic sense? And if not, what are the other catalysts prior to a huge breakdown of trust like an affair? 
Those are both really big questions and good questions. Um, there, to answer the first one, there's definitely preventive things that people can do. You know, even from premarital counseling, which research shows is actually quite beneficial for couples. In the history of marriage, premarital counseling often occurred in the context of our spiritual centers like church, synagogues, whatever um, kind of religious life you had, you would often get um, some advice and guidance from the clergy that worked there. But nowadays, you can actually get premarital counseling from a therapist. And I think either way that you do it, often premarital counseling can be really helpful because it helps you engage some of these practices and sort of know some of the things that can come down the pike of a normal marriage, which is, you know, communication challenges, differences in priorities, um, the challenges of navigating things like your intimacy life and uh, differences in how you want to handle your in-laws and differences in how you want to handle finances. Talking those things through in advance gives you some a, a way to sort of a, a toolkit really to be able to navigate some of those challenging uh, parts of the natural marital journey. Um, it also kind of sets the expectation, which is I think part of where people get stuck because I think that in our culture, we're often told that like a good relationship should feel easy, which is a huge myth. All relationships have challenges. And in fact, if you have a relationship without challenge, it might speak more to a lack of intimacy and willingness to get vulnerable with your partner than it might speak to its health. And so I think that recognizing that intimate relationships are going to require you to bump into one another, you know, when you have differences of opinions or different priorities or when life is stressful, right? That is a time that things get hard. So in terms of prevention, premarital counseling early on, and I also think that there are just habits that people can build over time that really are protective of relationships. And again, research shows this to be quite helpful. So for example, um, there is a team out of Clark University that does this research called the marital checkup where they have people just kind of come in regularly and kind of do these check-ins about how the relationship is going. And so when I do marital therapy, that's usually with people who are coming in because they're unhappy, I really advise people to start to practice a marital checkup. And you don't, you can call it whatever you want, but it's sort of like a weekly check-in. You put it on the calendar and the, the goal is to kind of check in. How are we doing? Is there any things that we're, that we're kind of avoiding talking about? And can we make it a habit to approach them? And if things are going well, can we celebrate them and build on them and savor them? And I always tell people to put it on the calendar for once a week, but aim for two out of four because life certainly gets in the way. So you want to be set these goals kind of flexibly. Um, there are other things to do too that I think couples often fail to do just in the natural course of life, getting really busy, which is like have fun together, talk with one another, talk about goals together, talk about shared values, talk about, um, celebrate differences, find ways to have inside jokes. Like, so these are some of the things that I think people, because they imagine their closest relationship should be on autopilot because, hey, you got to feed the kids and you have to meet your work deadlines and your partner can take care of themselves. So we sort of let our relationship fall to the bottom of the priority list. And so being more intentional and seeing, uh, approaching our relationship as um, something that we need to build health healthy habits around, I think can really make uh, it easier to avoid falling down the rabbit hole where things are so bad that you might open yourself up to an extramarital partner. To the second point, before I go on, did you have any thoughts about any of those? Well, I have lots of thoughts, but I, I, I think that 
The second question isn't so much how do you recover. You wrote really eloquently about that a couple of weeks ago. It's more are there minor like how do you how do you get to the point where you're broken enough to seek help but you're not so broken or the relationship isn't so broken that that a partner engages in an extramarital affair, which for some people based on value system, like that's just a hard end to the relationship for others. There can be healing as you wrote, there's kind of no one path to Rome. And these are very challenging situations that, um, different value sets lead to different outcomes, but how can, like, are there signs before that happens that are red flags that you can act on those red flags so that it doesn't end up with a big betrayal? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really good question. And I, like with everything, there's not one right answer, but I will say there's interesting research that shows that couples on average wait six years from the time they identify a significant problem before seeking couples therapy. And I think that just really speaks to the fact that there's this inertia bias where we tend to not take action when we find our relationships are not doing well I think the hope is that they'll kind of recover on their own, but it's a little bit like hoping that your body will get stronger without actually working out, right? It doesn't actually make sense, but it is something that we do. We sort of think about it and we make a plan and we say, well, not right now because I'm too stressed out or there's a crisis or I'm tired or, um, you know, I'll wait until the baby is out of diapers or until my teenager isn't, you know missing their curfew or until, you know, the promotion happens. And so we kind of kick the can down the road and say, when it gets easier, it's sort of this procrastination that humans um, fall into, right? Which is like, and I think that there's like a tension between truths. And I was actually thinking about this the other day that, you know, the things that we care about, we make time for, except, and this is the, the sort of paradox the things that we really care about are often so overwhelming and scary that we often avoid them. And so the tension between those two things often causes us not to attend to our relationship in the moment. We, we instead say, I'll, I'll do it when it gets easier. But of course, it's like not opening your bills. It doesn't get easier. It gets more and more overwhelming. What are some examples of significant problems? Because I think that to me, that's so um, full of ambiguity because on the one hand, I've heard you say, and, and I agree with this, that like relationships require work. And there are phases of relationships where it's a fair amount of work and it doesn't make sense to pathologize that. So where does it cross over from we're tired all the time, I'm feeling resentful, we're not having sex, but hey, we've got you know super young kids or a sick parent or we just moved across the country or I'm starting a new job. So this is just a normal stage versus this is a real problem. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there there are interesting sort of global assessments of marriage that researchers do that. Um, and, and there's sort of like this cut point of like you're a happy couple and you're an unhappy couple, but or you're an unhappy couple. But of course, it's really on a continuum. And for most people, it kind of varies moment to moment and day to day. Like we have a fight with our partner and we can be really unhappy with them and then recover and, and feel better. So the, the the items on a global assessment of relationship quality are things like, I feel like a team with my partner. I feel supported by my partner. I mostly have fun with my partner. My overall quality, uh, my overall relationship quality between 
you know, zero to 10 is, and you give it a number. And so what you want is, you know, mostly to feel like a teammate, mostly to feel supported, mostly to feel like you have fun, mostly to feel like you can talk and problem solve, mostly to feel like your overall relationship quality is relatively high. When you find that you're rating low or sort of assessing your relationship in the lower half, more often than not, that's a problem. But again, it really can be a symptom of like what you're going through in life. In my very first newsletter, I had this one uh, equation that I refer to that um, is comes from this huge body of research that shows that our relationship happiness has to do with what's going on around us, like in our environment. So for example, when you have young kids, life is very stressful. Or when you're going through financial hardship or health issues, life is real stressful. It has to do with what's going on inside of you as an individual. Are you struggling with depression? Are you feeling uncertain in your professional life? Are you struggling with um, your social network outside of the relationship? So what's going on for you? And then what's happening between the two of you? And all of those things contribute to how happy you are in your relationship. And again, it can sort of shift. I mean, longitudinal marital research shows that most couples who are married for long periods of time and who are even happy sort of, you know, 50 years in have rough patches, right? Really rough patches. But for happily married couples, you know, who are elderly, most of them will say that those rough patches were were extremely difficult, but that they contributed to individual growth and growth as a couple. So it's not even necessarily the case that if you're going through a tremendously rough patch, that it's a bad sign or that you necessarily need to see it as like some symptom of like, you know, we're in trouble. But one thing that you want to think about is your mindset. How often when you're in a rough patch, are you thinking about leaving the relationship versus how often are you seeing it as like, this is a tough period. So there's this body of research that I think is really interesting about relational mindset. And the researchers categorize the mindset as either um, committed, right? Like you're in the relationship or deliberative that you're considering staying or going. And what's interesting here is that people who are committed tend to have more positive illusions about their partner and their relationship. So you think that your partner is better than reality warrants or that your relationship is better than somebody else would assess it as. Whereas if you're in a more deliberative, evaluative mindset, you're more likely to give equal credence to positive and negative features in a more realistic way. So I think what that speaks to is like, can you sort of enjoy the good things and not make too much of the hard things, even when things are hard in your relationship? Or are you finding yourself really getting sucked into evaluating and focusing on the things that you don't like? And again, is that more perpetual and enduring as opposed to more fleeting? Like, can you recover quickly? Something that uh, to me seems common, but I'll let you tell me how common it actually is, Yell, is these things that start out as usual transitional periods in relationships get sticky. So the example that is so classic is we went into logistics mode because we have young kids and the frequency of sex or really any physical intimacy goes down. The amount of carefree fun we're having goes down because suddenly there's a lot to care about other than ourselves in the relationship. And on the one hand, it seems unhealthy to be like, alarm bells, alarm bells, something's wrong because that's just the context. It's a really challenging time. On the other hand, it seems like there can be an inertia to that. And now instead of the kids both being under three, 
they're both six and five or eight and nine, or they're in high school, but the patterns from that tough phase stick around. So is that just a myth? Because you often hear about like the relationship kind of getting smaller around kids when they're young, but then when it doesn't expand as kids get older, it can be problematic. Yeah. I mean, that is a really uh, widely understood finding that when kids arrive on the scene, that marital quality goes down. Interestingly, it goes back up over time as kids age, but it doesn't return to pre-kid levels until kids until 18 years after the kids are born, which coincidentally is when they go off to college. But again, this is a statistical finding, and couples can protect against that diminished relationship quality by doing things that are relationship enhancing. And I, th- I think you're pointing to exactly what the problem is, which is like, we feel so stressed out and we stop nurturing our relationship because all of our nurturing resources are going to keeping these small people alive. So it makes a whole lot of sense. So what I advocate is just for people to try to be very deliberate about sending something to their relationship, no matter what else is going on, but this something can be really, really small right? It can be like five minutes a week where you try to stay awake and check in and have a cuddle on the couch before you fall asleep in front of the Netflix show. Or, you know, bring your partner a cup of tea once a week, right? To let them know that you're thinking about them. Because the alternative is exactly what you're saying, which is that we get really calcified in bad habits around our relationships. And I just pulled up this quote because I just love it from John Gottman, who's a really you know well-known marital researcher, and he's written lots of really uh, lovely to read marriage guides. But he has this quote that I always think about, which is that couples who are demanding of their marriages are more likely to have deeply satisfying unions than those who lower their expectations. So I think that the the danger point, the sort of real symptom that you're in trouble is when you say, well, that's all there is, right? I guess we can't have more than that. My partner is who they are. I'm who I am. Or we just can't figure out how to get out of this rut. And you kind of throw your hands up. So I think the key is to say, you know, we are in a tough position. It it, it hasn't been going well. We're feeling disconnected. We're definitely bickering more than we want. We're not seeing eye to eye. But I think that we can try, right? We might fail if we try, but but let's try. So not to give up and to try different things, you know, whether it is seeking support from the outside or reading a book together or making some time to have fun and conserving some resources to send to your relationship, again, in realistic ways. Because it, it's like, you know, if you're going through a lot, um, you might sort of give up and eat junk food because it's comforting on a given day. That's not a problem. The problem is if you eat junk food every day and you never eat the healthy salad and you never work out your body, like that's, that's when your body gets really unhealthy. The same thing goes for relationships. Do you know when that Gottman quote was from? It's from his book, um, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. I can't remember what year. When was that first published? Hang on, I'll look. As you look that up, the reason that I ask is I think that the expectations in everything are so distorted by the internet and by selective sharing that I think there's also a danger in holding yourself to some sort of external expectation at least and then becoming miserable that you're not meeting it. So an example is I have, um, I'm, I'm not even going to do, well, I guess I have to do the, the gender to make the story make sense, but I know someone 
who was kind of talking about the complete lack of sex life after a child. And it's like, well, yeah, your wife is breastfeeding. Like her body is really kind of being taken over by a little alien that's dependent on it. And this person's like, yeah, but like I saw on the internet that like, you don't want to let that go. Then it's like, well, who'd you see that from? Mm-hmm. And it's some, you know, guru therapist that may or may not actually have a therapy practice. And like you dig down deeper and deeper and like, there's nothing there but a viral Instagram post. And I think that there is an equal danger in expecting things to be significantly better than like what a reality allots for during difficult times. And I know that these two truths can be true at once. And I think that's what I'm getting to is this paradox of being willing to do the work and grit it out and realize that sometimes things are hard and like acceptance on the one hand without over accepting legitimate problems. And what I'm hearing you say is that a problem becomes legitimate if it is enduring, if it's constantly on your mind, and if it's leading to somewhat repetitive um, and powerful thoughts about, hey, do I really want to be in this relationship? But it's not like, oh, I wish we had more time together, or Mm -hmm. I wish my partner would do the laundry more, or I wish we were having more sex. It's like, this person is no longer on my team. Is that the level? Because I think a lot of people have a much lower bar for starting to think that something's wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think that, so first of all, the book came out in 2015. So the internet was around, but maybe people weren't as consumed by social media and those images that are really misleading in terms of what relationships can and should be. Um, And yeah, I, I do think that it is, the quality of the thought is important, but it's also like when we are feeling tired and stressed out or when our partner has said something that is really hurtful, it it is really normal to say, well, screw that person. I give up. I I don't want to be with them. Right. I think we also sometimes make too much of these hot thoughts. We call them hot thoughts in, in cognitive psychology that come out of high emotion moments, right? It's okay to have those thoughts. It's not terribly meaningful other than you're upset with your partner and your feelings were injured. I think it's more the what you do with it that matters, right? So if you have that hot thought of, you know, screw this person, they don't deserve my attention and you walk away, but then you come back the next day and you say, hey, like that really hurt my feelings. Let's talk about it. That's so different than if you sort of shut down entirely and decide to sleep in the other room. And all of a sudden, a year later, you haven't been in the same bed, right, since that time. And that's, you know, that's sort of where I typically see couples coming in for therapies. Like we haven't slept in the same bed for several years. And I don't remember the last time that we had a date that wasn't with other people. And when we go out with other people, we actually don't actually talk to each other at all. The only thing that we confer on is, you know, logistics around the house. There's there's not any connection or any uh, optimism that we could have a connection, right? That's like the enduring sort of calcified disconnection and polarization is is the problem. It's not having the thoughts. And I think that's where the tension lies. It's sort of, it is okay to have an anxious thought, it is okay to have a hopeless thought. But if that, if you really buy hook, line, and sinker into those thoughts and they become something that drives your behavior or your avoidance, your lack of behavior, that that really uh, creates a situation that's very hard to exit. Can we talk about sleeping in the same bed for a minute? Mm, Yeah. 
So I'm I actually, curious. I don't know, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I know research on this, but I can tell you my clinical experience. And there was an interesting uh, New York Times piece about this recently. Yeah, I'm really curious about this. So um, there is sleeping in a different bed because feelings were hurt. There was a fight and you just feel like I can't even share a bed with this person. I have to imagine that that is um, not a good long-term thing. Then they're sleeping in a different bed because there's a young child on the scene and it doesn't make sense for both people to be up if one is just going to be doing moral support or they're sleeping in different bed because one person really likes it when it's cold in night and the other person wants it warmer. And you've tried all the fancy mattresses, but the truth is like 64 degrees is not 71 degrees. I'm curious in those latter situations, um, what you make of it. And I'm, I'm without divulging too much because Caitlin will get mad. I'm kind of curious from personal experience. And this is like, if it were up to me, we would probably sleep in different beds every night. And as listeners of the show know, I am not every night, but a lot. I am not like a crazy, you know, sleep uh, optimizer. I just really don't sleep unless it's freezing cold. And Caitlin likes it warm. And um, if we're up to Caitlin, we would just sleep in the same bed every night. Not like getting all sexy. Like her love language is just like me in the same bed as her. And I'm like, but I really want to sleep and not wake up six times because I'm too hot. So we, of course, try our best to meet in between, but I'm curious how you think about this because I must not be the only person. I know I'm not. One of my good friends wants to make an invention that I think would do very well that would be um, a bed that starts out is the same bed and then gradually separates and there's like a trap door in the room. And then once you both fall asleep, you're in a separate room than your partner with the right lighting and the right uh, temperature. (laughs) That's brilliant. That would be a real money maker. (laughs) Um, yeah, so the, I'll add another one, which is a a common thing that I hear about is one partner snores really loudly. And so for the other partner to get sleep, it's it's the same thing with the temperature, but there are legitimate. Or like a chronic middle of the night peer four times and the other person's a light sleeper. The bed's just not that big, like things like that. Yeah. 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 So there's, there's those kind of logistical practical issues that might drive a couple to choose sleeping arrangements that that don't have them in the same space. And I think that makes it harder to find connection because the bed is where couples find connection, but it's not insurmountable. I think the the trick with that is to say, okay, well, we're not going to fall asleep and it's going to be a little bit harder to um, just find natural opportunities for sexy time. So you need to be more deliberate about those things to find connection time, to find time for intimacy, to find time, like pillow talk is a real thing, right? That people are sort of like talking about their days after the kids go to bed and they're sort of unwinding and they're kind of checking in. And so that time isn't available if you're sleeping in a different bedroom with one than one another, but it's not something that is unavailable so long as you're creative. Like I have seen lots of couples who, you know, do their sexy time in the middle of the day if they both work from home and find connection time in the morning. And pro tip, if you have young kids, it's the only way, at least that's been my experience. (laughs) Cause at night you're, even if you are in the same bed, like everyone's just too tired always. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, I think that when you have young kids, you have to be creative about, in general, about prioritizing your relationship because you are, you're tired and you're just so maxed out with all the needs of the small people. I think that is a reality. Um, But 
I think where it gets more problematic is when, and and only you can know this and, and you, you know, to all the listeners, but often what I see is that the the reason that people started sleeping in a different bed may have made some sense, but it turns into this avoidance tactic. And one or the other partner is well aware, right? And it becomes this sort of hot button item that like you're putting the kids to bed and then you're falling asleep in their bed and you're avoiding me. And and it feels real, right? That one person is sort of using the fact that they're not in the same bed to escape time with their partner because there's conflict, because there's, you know, a sense of disconnection and discomfort in trying to connect. And so that's the danger point is if, if the sleeping in a separate place or, or, you know, in whatever way you're sort of time that other couples might have available to them is not available to you. If that becomes sort of the, the excuse to not connect, that's the problem. It's not the, it's not the problem specifically of not sleeping in the same bed. It's sort of what it represents and what it makes available to you. Yeah, that's reassuring. Um, and I think that that's such a social norm to sleep in the same bed. I talk about this often with like one of my best friends. Um, she's like an older sister to me who, who is also a proponent of separate bed sleeping for better sleep. Um, but if you're putting the kids to bed, cleaning the house, doing whatever you need to do to close out the day, and then you both meet on the couch for 45 minutes to cuddle, watch a show, maybe have sex, talk. And then you both say, all right, we're falling asleep. Person A goes upstairs, person B goes downstairs. When you wake up in the next morning around the same time and everything's fine, but you both sleep well because of the various logistics of what it takes to sleep well, that's okay because there's not like avoidance. If anything, you're working to make sure that you're basically falling asleep together. You're just not in the same bed. Yeah. Is that right? I think that's 100% right. And But the other thing that it brings up is, and this is maybe uh, dovetailing on your example, on your personal example that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, but like, what if one person's love language is that cuddle time before and falling asleep together, whereas the other person's love language is intimacy or or something else that doesn't require you to be in the same bed? And, and that becomes really difficult. And I think those, it's interesting because love languages is... Uh, a theory and an idea that did not come from research. It has some research behind it, but I just think it's a really useful concept that people connect in different ways and in different directions. I mean, one common gender finding is that men tend to feel more emotionally connected after having sex, whereas women want to feel emotionally connected in order to want to have sex, right? So the directionality is really different. And getting back to the the bed example, it can be hard because if one person wants to connect in bed and the other person wants to connect by going out on the town, then you have a mismatch. And and there, I think the the tool is to figure out how to compromise and t- do some turn taking, and then really appreciate when your partner comes in to try to speak your language, and give them a lot of credit, even if they're kind of clunky as they do it, or it doesn't turn out as perfect as if you had somebody who had the exact same love language. Yeah. And I think that also like, this is a problem that to some extent money can solve. Um, if you have the money with various blankets and, you know, Mm -hmm. a really powerful HVAC air conditioner, so on and so forth. What you just said about the connection around sex, I wonder if that is, um, just an inheritance from our earliest ancestors, because it would kind of make sense, right? That like 
a woman only gets so many shots to be pregnant and have kids and pass on their DNA. So like they really want to vet the person to make sure it's the right one. Cause it's a, at the very least, like a nine month, really a 18 month commitment. Um, I guess it's, I, you, you could probably get pregnant right away, but it's, it's, it's at least, it's the better part of a year commitment. So you want to make sure like, dude's not a jerk. Whereas for the guy, it's like, oh, now there's a chance that you're carrying my DNA, so I should care about you. And this is like purely like what a rote evolutionary biologist would say. It's not my opinion, but I do yeah. wonder if some of that's just left over. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, you know, as a, in one conversation that I had with somebody, like all evolutionary explanations are sort of like just so stories. We don't really know, but it does make sense. And I will also say it is a statistical finding. There are some women who don't need to feel emotionally connected to want to have sex. And there's some men who really want to feel that emotional connection. So of course, you know, those are generalizations, but but there is some some data that would suggest there is a difference. Yeah, we talked about this a couple episodes ago um, in our two-part series on masculinity. And how that was such a good good set of episodes. I highly recommend them. Oh, thank you. Um, well now I'm just going to pass on their pay it forward. The, the Richard Reeves who wrote the book that we riffed on does such a beautiful job of talking about just because there are very real differences based on biological sex in populations, that doesn't mean that they apply at the individual level. And two things can be true at once, which is one, when we think about what equality and equity of outcomes and opportunities means, we can look at distributions which show that there are certain things about the male sex versus the female sex that are different. But when you evaluate an individual male versus an individual female, that there are overlapping bell curves, so it might be completely in reverse. And then when you look at gender, there's even like another layer on top. So these are like useful tools, but they're, they're not the be all, um, and, and end all. And I mean, I see that a lot in my relationship. I am like the emotional feeler, um, more romantic artistic. And Caitlin is like the classical thinker logic, much like colder would much rather watch sports than listen to music. Um, so our bell curve, like we are not on the normal part of the bell curve in that regard, but that doesn't make me say like, oh, this is just some nonsense cultural thing. Like generally speaking, women are more of the feelers than the men and for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there is a truth that in general, that women tend to feel, uh, that connection leads to desire as opposed to, uh, consummation leading to connection. That's Ooh, I like how you put that. Yeah. So, um, I guess I have one more question on, um, what I'm going to call romantic or intimate relationships and, and then we can shift gears a little bit, but I'm curious if we could do like a quick rapid fire and I'm, I'm kind of putting you on the spot because I didn't tell you that this would happen. It doesn't have to be that rapid, but <laughs> as you were talking earlier, I just listed down like big kind of transitions where the context changes in a relationship And I'm curious if you can name like some common pitfalls or traps and then what we can do to overcome them or um, what people do really well during these transitions. So the first transition I have is from like flirting. I'm kind of into you. We met on an online dating app and we went out to dinner a couple times to I am now in an exclusive dating relationship with someone. So pitfalls is um, so 
in the initial dating phase, the the sort of classic way that we think about it is like that's passionate love is like we get really intoxicated by a person. We have like almost a sense of like a, addictive, like we want more of them and we only see their good. And then there's, you know, a transition into something that feels more stable and enduring, which is more the companionate love. And there we tend not to feel as much that intoxication, but there's more of like a stability and a trust and uh, a sense of commitment, which is lovely. And so I think one of the pitfalls is that people don't nurture the passion. I mean, we're, we're, maybe I'm still thinking about intimacy, but I, this is obviously something that I talk about a lot in the couples therapy room, which is that once people sort of enter into the stable domain, they feel like they, you know, where did, where did the physical connection go? And I think what happens is, you know, for a lot of people, sexual chemistry is built on tension and mystery and intrigue. It's sort of like the chase. It's what you don't know. It's what you don't quite have. And it's so intoxicating to like pursue it and to get some satisfaction and then still to be a little bit unsure. What's kind of interesting about this is that even in a long-term committed relationship where you know the person really well, you can build some of that in, right? You can sort of build in some novelties, some variety, some uncertainty, but you just have to be more deliberate about it. So that's one pitfall. It's Um, exactly like strength training or running or writing or really anything that like, as you're getting really good, there's like so much fun, low-hanging fruit to explore and you're on this path to mastery and you're learning it and it's really exciting. And then suddenly like you deadlift 500 pounds or you run a four minute and 10 second mile, or you've written four books. And it's really easy to just be like, wow, like now what? Because getting from five to 505 pounds or writing the fifth book, like it's just not that exciting anymore. Um, and what good coaches do is they help people find ways to inject novelty within that craft. Um, which is kind of what I hear you saying. So it's a, it's not surprising that there's such a like universality to that, but I think there is. Yeah. I love, I love that analogy. And I do think it's true because, you know, there is something like we're sort of, we buy into this myth that like, once we have all the things we want, we'll feel content, but that's not actually what, what works for most people. Like there's something that is really satisfying about pursuing something that's a little bit out of reach, right? That's when we get into flow is like when the, te- the, the knowledge base that we have or the challenge of the task is just outside, right? When it's too much within our, within our wheelhouse, we get a little bored and we feel stagnant. When it's too far outside of what is possible, we feel anxious and overwhelmed. But we do want to sort of move the bar a little bit in our relationship, right? We, we don't want to get complacent. And it is really easy to do that. Maybe you're maybe actually the transition that you were talking about was earlier on. But I do think that once relationships and dating kind of get a little bit accepted and and sort of safe, that that can um, sort of, the air can be let out of that tire. Another actually interesting finding that I think is a, it's a real common pitfall that people inside of marital research are really familiar with, but probably fewer people outside, which is it's actually the statistical finding of cohabiting before you've made a long-term commitment is not so favorable. In other words, it's not a great idea to move in with somebody until you have a long-term commitment because what happens is there's much more of a likelihood of sliding instead of deciding. This is actually terminology that these researchers from the University of Denver use. And I think it's really applicable to lots of different areas of relational life. But you move in with the person because you're like, ah, you know, it would be cheaper. We don't have to pay our own rents. And, you know, we could 
spend more time together and it would be easier. And also I'll see if I like living with this person. But now you've made an investment. Now you share a bunch of furniture and your social circle has gotten more intertwined. And oh, the timing is such that, oh, it probably makes sense to consider getting married. Well, we've already done, we have all these sunk costs, we might as well. And so you kind of slide into marriage and, and having children. And then the commitment is really high. But all along the way, you were sort of wondering, is this the right person? And so what they find is these, these sort of early doubts and lack of commitment but that you've just kind of slid into a committed relationship, predict long-term relationship dissolution. And so the, the key is before you make a commitment like living together, make sure you're committed to the relationship. Don't use living together as an easy way out or as a test of the relationship. Instead, decide, don't slide. And does that commitment generally mean in, in, like to be engaged or yeah, if you don't so necessarily believe in the, the convention of marriage, like to agree on long-term partnership and whatever, whatever official way that that looks like for you? Yeah. So the way that the research is defined is like engagement or marriage uh, before it. cohabitation. So then that's my next juncture is so you're dating and maybe you didn't cohabitate because you were wise and now you're engaged. Um, what are the pitfalls that come at this point? So I think that a lot of people, when they're engaged, think a lot about the wedding and not enough about married life, <laughs> which is like so silly. Uh, but we, we know we do it, right? We get so excited about the party and stressed out about who's going to come and how much it's going to cost and what, you know, what dress we're going to wear. And I'm guilty of this too. But here's where I think premarital counseling is really helpful because it pushes you to think about what your long-term life goals are, to really clarify your values with one another, to talk about your different love languages and how you're going to navigate the differences, to talk about, for example, how you want to have productive conflict, because inevitably you will have conflict. There will be tough times. To talk about things like where you want to live and how many kids you want to have or whether you want to have them at all, to talk about professional aspirations and how you're going to support one another. I do think that this is a time that people just kind of get, again, complacent and sort of think, well, we made the commitment, we'll figure it out. But figuring out how to build some tools before you actually need them is really, really useful. It's a little bit like, I always think about this like meditation. Like if you want to sort of know how to focus your mind, the time to practice it is not when you're all amped up and angry or anxious. The time to practice it is when you're feeling calm. So if you practice these tools of communication, of values clarification, of goal setting together when you're feeling pretty good, then those skills will be available to you when inevitably you hit a rough patch. So I think that the time of engagement is a really excellent time to be building that toolkit. All right. So then marriage. What are like the pitfalls of, and we'll call it early marriage because, you know, marriage can last decades, but so you get married is the big transition. You have the wedding, you go on the honeymoon and now you're married. Yeah. I think it, I mean, there's so much variability here, but you know, this is a time when people's goals might, your timelines might differ. Like one partner might want to settle down and have kids. The other partner might want to travel and, you know, have a lot of fun before you even settle down. Um, it's also where people are trying to get their professional lives, uh, often where people are trying to get their professional lives up and running. And so it can be really easy to, I mean, it's a similar thing that happens when we have kids. It can be really easy to throw 
all of your resources into getting that part of your life in moving to really feel like you have some momentum before you do other kinds of family activity. And I, again, I just think that the danger is that if you practice not nourishing your relationship, that becomes a habit that is really hard to break. And so this is a phase of life where it's really helpful to think about, you know, I do want, you know, to have a full and interesting professional life, or I do want to have kids, or I do want to have an active social life, or I do want to really dive into my, um, you know, pursuing athletic achievement or whatever the case may be. Um, but to sort of balance that with how do I want to be practicing taking care of my relationship? You know, what are the kinds of things that make sense to be uh, building habits around, lifelong habits that sort of start right now? All right. So we already talked at length about um, having kids. So what about the next big phase, which I would call uh, kids move out of the house for those that had kids? Yeah. Interestingly, this is a time point where you actually see a, a, a big rise in in separations and divorces right after kids move out of the house. And I think it's because a lot of couples stay together for the kids, but aren't really doing much to nurture their relationship. And so the kids leave and they realize, oh, we don't have anything in common. We don't connect. We haven't connected in years. And, you know, I still have some years left where I could enjoy life and I would like to enjoy them not with you, which is a fair thing to do. But again, this is uh, an open question about whether you should leave. And it's not a bad thing to decide to part with your partner. After right. Or want to. I think this yeah. is such an interesting juncture. I know a couple of people that um, have done just this that have parted after their kids left and it's always hard and painful, but it's kind of on like pretty good terms. Like, Hey, look at these wonderful kids that we raised and maybe there's grandkids now in like this phase, like this chapter of our life is over and we can still be friends and still show up at Christmas or Hanukkah, whatever it is, the family events together and support our kids. But like, we're just kind of roommates now and we could do better than that. Um, I think that nobody thinks that's going to happen to them when they're at our age though. So, and we'd like for that not to happen, I think. So it's like, I'm, I'm not really asking a question, but there's kind of two things. One is like, there's a lot of judgment around that and should there be probably not. But the other is, um, to me, it would feel kind of weird to look at Caitlin and be like, all right, like we just have to stay together until the kids are off and then we can decide what to do. Well, then you kind of already answer that question by asking it. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. The the other thing that I'll just point out is like, should you judge that or not is, is an interesting question. But the research shows that people, particularly men who stayed married, who stay married, um, are like physically and emotionally healthier. Like there is something that we get from marriage. And, you know, that is not true if you're deeply unhappy in your marriage. But if you can cultivate a happy relationship, it's good for you. It's good for us. But is that reverse causation that like those yeah, that are physically and emotionally healthy are more likely to stay married? I mean, you you could say that, but but also interventions where they help couples, where couples are helped to improve in their marital quality also find improvements in other aspects of their life. So yeah, that's such a fascinating question. And then how much of the degradation is just like guilt and shame because <laughs> it's a social construct? Because like the thought experiment, right, is imagine if we live to be 300, 
would it still make sense to have one partner for 300 years? And I'm, like I said, I'm a romantic, so I would say yes. <laughs> but I think a lot of like smart philosophers would argue no, and like there should be no moral attachment to it. Yeah. I think it it is an interesting question, and I don't pretend to have the answer, but I do think that, you know, what we know about stable attachments is that they provide kind of an anchor for us. And I don't know, if we lived 300 years, you could probably have a number of stable attachments, and so you could, you know, get more of what you wanted. But, you know, I, you know, I, I'm not even a monogamous necessarily. I mean, I'm personally a monogamous, but I see lots of couples in my practice who are polyamorous. And I don't actually, I don't have any judgment. I think it's great if that works for you. And can that work? I know we're kind of going off base a little bit. That could probably be its own episode. It's So that can work. It can totally work. What I will say about polyamory is that it's very energy intensive. Yeah. There's like a lot of communication and coordination that has to happen and a lot of trust and um, transparency that is required for it to work well. So it can work. It can be deeply fulfilling. People can get more of their needs met because they kind of spread their relationship needs into lots of different baskets. But because it it, it is so complicated, it, it's really energy intensive. Yeah, I, it, it just feels like it would be, and I'm sure some of it, not some, a lot of like whether it works or not is probably just related to the temperament of the people that are engaging it. Like, yeah. it's so hard for me to imagine someone being like, you know, oh, like it's just sex and I can compartmentalize. Um, or like, oh, it's just, you know, that person on those days for that reason and I can compartmentalize. It's just not how my brain works, yeah. but my brain is very different than other people's brains. Yeah. And I mean, me too. I can't compartmentalize like that, but it it is interesting to see, to meet with people who can and who find that it works pretty well. I mean, I obviously get like a subset of people because they're coming in for couples therapy for a reason, but from what I understand, I think it can work pretty well, but you have to sort of really be on the same page. Like if, if one person, like, for example, I have a lot of couples who come in where one person really wants an open marriage and the other person does not. And that is a really difficult thing to figure out. What do you do with that? If both people want to stay married, but one person wants to fulfill sexual desire outside of the marriage and the other person finds that to be a, a really significant betrayal, that's that's like a that's a challenging one to figure out. I, I kind of want to go into the weeds here just for a minute because I'm fascinated by this. Um where does like pornography come in in a situation like that? Because my answer is way too simplistic. I'm not a relationship therapist would be like, okay, like, you know, pleasure yourself with the aid of pornography and problem solved. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things where getting back to sort of the different transitional points, it's useful to talk about that during dating or engagement to figure out like what are, I, so I think, marriage, the legal institution of marriage is really nice because it provides like a, a little bit of a formal contract. But I think people should do more by way of informal contract or I mean, as in not legally binding, but like, how do we feel about what constitutes monogamy or what constitutes faithfulness? Um, and which speaks to your question about pornography, because some people believe that looking at pornography is a form of infidelity. Whereas, you know, many people don't see it that way. They just see it as like, you know, we are visual creatures who find 
uh, alternative partners attractive and it's okay to look as long as you're committed to staying together with the person. And then other people are kind of like, you know, it's okay uh, for you to look and even fantasize and maybe even to have close relationships that are a little bit flirtatious any further than that. But again, it's sort of articulating that with your partner about where you feel the line is uh, that makes you feel comfortable and safe with that person and being willing to negotiate that because you might not have the exact same uh, classification of what constitutes a committed relationship. And this is something I I read um, a wild article earlier this month in New York magazine where people were falling in love with, um, AIs and they were doing it, um, like monogamously. So they, they had like left their partners for the AIs, but particularly when it comes to, and I approach, this is where on a bell curve, I think I'm probably more like stereotypically how a, a male gender would approach this. I tend to approach affairs not as like, an emotional betrayal, but just like novelty and sex. And I can't help but think like, are we going to get to a world where the robots are so good that like, who needs an affair? They'll be like a lifelike robot. (laughs) And then does that constitute cheating or not? And how is that different than pornography? And to your point, I think like you have to kind of have a shared understanding of these things because otherwise it could get murky really fast. Yeah. Or or even like masturbation while fantasizing about somebody outside of your marriage, right? Is where does that fit in? I, yeah, I think- and, and it, I think it probably depends on the 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 couple and also like are do you need to share that with your partner if you're not gonna ever act on it? Um Right. And or- and, I, and I say as I say as I say the AI thing too, it's like in a way, you could argue that a lot of relationships already break down because of AI, because people are sitting on their phones engaging with the internet world versus spending time with their partner. But I'm curious to, to come back to the issue of like fantasizing about someone else is infidelity. Yeah, I mean, I so. I actually had an interesting conversation about this with uh, a woman, uh, an author by the name of Daphne DeMarneff, and she wrote a really great book that I recommend called The Rough Patch. And what she talks about is it's sort of, it's the extent to which, right? You always say like a good answer is it depends, right? Which is in this case is very applicable. Um, You know, it is very normal and healthy and not a problem for most marriages to have fantasies, right? Like we are, we do, we are, compelled by novelty. And so if you see somebody attractive and you have human eyes and a human brain, it's pretty normal to sort of think, oh, you know, that would be nice. (laughs) So there's nothing wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with your marriage having that thought. The issue becomes if it, if it turns into something that's more all-consuming and it's interfering. And then it like interferes with the marriage. Yes, exactly. Because my gestalt is it's always these politicians that are like such purist or um, members of religions that are like, no, you know, you cannot fantasize. Um, you cannot look at other women. In some cultures, like women have to dress a certain way. And then these are the assholes that end up like in affairs, actually having sex outside of their marriage. It's like, like, dude, you know, you should have just fantasized a bit. Um, I mean, you see this, you see this in certain cultures in, in, in where, um, like, I don't, I, I, there's some moral relativism, but I, I struggle with a lot of cultures where women are so oppressed 
particularly sexually, but then the men are like constantly engaging in prostitution, in um, using sex workers and all sorts of things. But like, I think a lot of it is just like repressed pent up facade of this, like hold yourself to a perfect sterile 10, which is very hard to do for most people. And then eventually like that pressure cooker explodes and you just go all in the other way. A hundred percent. I mean, to me, it kind of gets back to this core construct of psychological flexibility that we talk about a lot in in the treatment that I practice called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is like, you know, we want to be flexible about the things that we do and don't do and to be flexible in value aligned ways that fit with our context. And part of our context is that we live inside of human bodies that are wired for desire. It is normal to have desire. So if your value is to have a monogamous relationship, how can you be flexible about allowing yourself to have these human impulses and drives without shaming yourself or like getting super rigid and suppressing because we know that that's not healthy, but also not acting in ways that are out of line with the kind of partner that you'd like to be. And I think part of that is having self-compassion. Like it is okay to have a fantasy and then to be curious, like what's my value here? How can I allow myself to be human, but still show up as the kind of partner that feels really important for me to, to show up as? Something I once heard along this line, which again is like, um, it seems like just like a very like dude way to think about it is like, if you're like ever at a conference or a hotel and like you're flirting and stuff, just like go upstairs, masturbate. And then the problem is solved. And like, if you need to do it again the next night, the problem is solved. Um, which, which again, like is, but then do you share that with your partner that that's your approach? And what if your partner says, I don't want you to do that. And then is that too pure? And maybe these are like the kinds of conversations to have with the help of a therapist. Maybe they're good things to work through. Um, or maybe they're just things that like, you don't really share because it's pretty implied in your mind that like, yeah, like cheating is actually physically engaging with someone else. Or to your point, if it's like an emotional affair, well, it it probably has to get in the way of the marriage for that other person to notice. So if you can't feel intimate with your partner, you're not making time for them because you're constantly fantasizing about someone else, whether they're a human or an AI bot, then that's perhaps a lot more problematic than if it's like this fleeting thing that is an ebb and flow desire, which to your point, like if you're a human with a body and a brain that you probably will have that happen at some point in your life. Exactly. And it kind of gets back to the uh, to, to the quote from John Gottman, which is like, is it interfering with you working on your relationship? I think is a, is a really good question or, or maybe said even more broadly, like how much is it interfering, right? Because, you know, life interferes to some extent always, but are you still able to direct some resources to trying to make your relationship great? We're always working on our relationship, just like we're always working on ourselves. Not that we have to be... In, self-improvement projects all the time, but like relationships need some attention. They need some nurturance. And so if you're constantly thinking about somebody else or if, you know, an AI bot, um, so much so that you're not directing anything towards your relationship, that's more the problem, right? That your attention has been pulled away by something else so much so that you're not able to, to devote anything to it. And that becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy because the less you work on it, the less satisfying it becomes because you're not going to feel as connected or interested or fulfilled. Um, but it's really a result of not sort of putting in some of the resources that are required to keep a living thing alive and thriving. 
Yeah, I think this also gets so much um, to the definition of a behavioral addiction, which is like continued use despite negative consequences. And I think in relationships, the example is probably pornography, where like if the reason that you feel compelled to use porn is to avoid the relationship and then you use porn to such an extent where there's no longer sex drive or intimacy drive for your partner and then they realize it and then now they're like kind of even more resistant and then you just get this vicious cycle where clearly the continued use has negative consequences where if use of something doesn't have negative consequences to psychological flexibility then like it's probably okay in most circumstances yeah and and sort of dovetailing on that if if you find yourself in that position, either where you're fantasizing so much about somebody else or you're spending so much time on pornography that you don't have any resources left for your relationship, I think that is a good time to disclose to your partner. Like, I'm struggling because then, only then, can you work it out with them and recover with them. And hopefully do it before some before an affair happens and, or if an affair discovery happens, if an affair is already happening, right? If you're the one that comes forward. Uh, Let me sort of back up because I think in the affairs work, which is kind of where we started, there's sort of two levels of betrayal. One is that you've engaged in behavior that's sort of outside of the marital agreement, formal and informal. Like you know, and your partner knows that the agreement was we don't have sex outside of the relationship or we don't develop relationships with people outside of this primary relationship that are as intense and as romantic. The second is the lying, right? It's the lack of transparency and honesty, right? So, and they go together, but like one is behavioral and one is more the the verbal piece. And so if you're able to come clean and say to your partner, like, I've been struggling with this, or I've been having fantasies, or I've been spending too much time on pornography. I think it's been interfering with our relationship. I want to do a pivot and help repair this relationship before things get any worse. That's a really productive thing and scary thing to do, but it's such a healthy thing rather than allowing it to sort of continue to go on. But but it is scary. And I think that that's sort of where people get caught and they sort of just get paralysis and don't move at all and just allow the decision of not deciding to kind of carry them further down the rabbit hole of ill relationship health. And I have to imagine that you also have to be willing to um, hold space for a partner that's really pissed off at you. Like I can imagine, especially in the case of an affair, but even like pornography, it's probably not a lovely thing to hear your partner say, hey, I've been using pornography, you know, at a rate that leaves me no real energy for you. And I realize this is a problem. Um, Hard not to act or react defensively to to something like that, I would imagine. Again, context matters, right? If somebody is undergoing cancer treatment or just had surgery or there's young kids, again, like maybe you could argue that's even worse because it's like, I'm sitting here with cancer and you're worried about your sex drive. But to me, like if there's truly like kind of no contextual reason, then, then perhaps it's, it's even harder. And, and I've read some really, um, moving memoirs about cancer. And that often comes up is like the, um, it seems like many of these memoirs have affairs or almost affairs where the caretaker and partner is the one that's almost engaging in an affair or engaging in an affair because they're the person that they're married to simply like cannot be physically intimate. And that's really shitty because like physical intimacy is important in a relationship, but 
God, would you feel like a douche being like, well, I have these physical intimacy needs, even though you're fighting like stage three, stage four cancer. Um, what a clusterfuck. Yeah. Well, similar to that, I actually um, did a research study. This was like during grad school. So like a hundred years ago that found that pregnancy was a, a risk factor for an affair, right? Because the partner who is pregnant is not that available for intimacy. And so the the non-pregnant partner feels unfulfilled desires. And so it becomes a risk factor. And this is why communication and sort of figuring out together how to navigate those trickier patches as a team is so important because... But isn't the... Can I interrupt real quick? Isn't the gestalt here where I'm going to side with like my sisters out there? Like, Mm. give me a fucking break. Like I am pregnant. I'm carrying a baby in my stomach and you're worried about like having sex more frequently (laughs) right now. Assuming that both people in the couple wanted... I'm going to side with your homies because I actually think part of what gets so tricky is that we have so little sympathy for somebody who would have an affair. But the reality is, and I see this all the time in therapy, the person who had the affair was like, I'm in need, right? I want your attention. I want to feel loved. I want to feel desired. I want to feel connected. And the person who is like not the perpetrating partner, and I'm putting like air quotes around that because I think both people contribute to having risk factors for an affair. Basically, shut Oh, you're them triggering down. me so much right now. Oh, <laughs> I want to hear why. But I, I, I really do. I, I think the person who had the affair is ultimately responsible, right? It's like if you're, if you're engaging in ways that are harmful, you are ultimately responsible. But in a relationship, most problems are co-created. And if that person was trying to speak up and say, I have needs and I'm trying to feel connected and I know you're pregnant, but I really want to feel important to you. And the pregnant person's like, sorry, like I'm busy over here. Like on the one hand, they have every right to say that. On the other hand, like there's not any space for the partner to have needs. And, and that isn't the way reality works. Like that other partner who's not pregnant or who doesn't have cancer is allowed to be human. Yeah. And I think that this probably gets to like my own, you know, perfectionism and probably too judgmental thinking, which is like why I find this triggering. Um, But what I would say is, I guess I'm more sympathetic if there's multiple communication attempts that fail and then there's an affair. But my guess is if there's multiple communication attempts that fail, then there's probably a separation or divorce before what would be an affair than I am with someone who like just expects their partner to read their mind or is signaling in a way that's so obvious to them, but their partner's not picking up on it because perhaps they're pregnant or have cancer. So then it's like, oh, this was such a last ditch cry for help. And it's like, no, it wasn't. Like, come on. That's my, and I'm not saying I'm right, but like, that's Mm -hmm. where my judgmental brain clearly is kicking in. I think that that is the misconception, though. I think it is more often the case that there have been multiple attempts from the partner who ends up misbehaving to say, like, I'm not I'm not happy. I'm not doing well. I'm not feeling like you're seeing me or hearing me. And often the partner who is sort of like the innocent partner has, for for their own reasons, not been able to hear what the, the partner who ends up acting out is is trying to tell them. And I think that that is a symptom of a more enduring relationship problem, which is that there's a breakdown in communication that can be caught earlier, but often isn't. And so maybe like the the sort of public service announcement here is 
if you're feeling like you're trying to tell your partner that you're unhappy and they're not hearing you, don't wait and don't do something to sort of take care of it that's sort of outside of the bounds of what you've agreed upon in this relationship. Go get help because sometimes those communication breakdowns are really, really hard to overcome without some assistance. All right. There's so much more we could talk about. Um, We should do a part two to this podcast. So if that's okay with you, let's do a part two. And I want to ask one more question on intimate relationships because I had all these questions about setting boundaries and dealing with parents and in-laws and so on and so forth. But it'll be nice to just chunk that for the next conversation that we'll have. My final question on this topic, or at least my final broad um, theme I want to explore, is how much change do you see relationships tolerate before that becomes an issue? So the example that comes to my mind is two people start out in the same religion, and they're fairly devoted practitioners. And then one person says, you know what? This isn't for me. I've realized things. This makes no sense. Or the opposite. Two people start in no religion or the same religion. And then one person finds God or finds a spiritual path. And the other person's like, eh, not really for me. Um, There's a million things like that with hobbies, right? Like you both started out as collegiate athletes. And now one of you is a pro and the other person is selling insurance or whatever (laughs) it is. Um, Because these things happen all the time. How, How much change can relationships withstand And are there any areas of those change where it's like, wow, like the value systems are just too disaligned? Like I can imagine that if my partner wanted to practice any religion in the most orthodox conservative sense, it would be very hard for me to stay in that relationship unless I too went on that spiritual path with them, not for them, but with them. Yeah. Well, I have a just on the specifically on the religious front, there's interesting research that shows that couples are more likely to stay together if they have the same level of religiosity. So it's not the religion that you ascribe, subscribe to. It's actually the intensity with which you subscribe that is helpful. So it's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's counterintuitive in the sense that like you'd think if like someone like wants to like take up like a pretty intense practice of religion and the other person like doesn't have any, it's like, oh, whatever, you're religious. But what you're saying is like, it's actually in the research, there's a better chance of the the marriage staying together if the other person has a different religion, but at the same level. Yeah. I mean, it is. And also it's easier if you're the same religion and the same level. Sure. I can imagine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The other, the other research finding that what you're saying brings to mind is, so I, when I started my career in marital research, uh, I was studying treatment, couples treatments for couples where one or both partners had an alcohol use disorder. And what we find is that couples where both people drink a lot, they stay together. But couples where they start off drinking together and then one person decides, sort of grows out because there's sort of this typical maturation process where, you know, early on in life, people are more likely to abuse substances like in college. And then as people age, they tend to drop off except for the people who have more of an unhealthy relationship and more enduring unhealthy relationship tend to continue on. And that is really problematic for a relationship. So it's sort of like the shared activity can keep you together even if it's an unhealthy shared activity. So I think that there is something to that. Like when you no longer share things 
or share a core thing, it is hard for a relationship to endure. And I think there's a couple ways to sort of, I don't know, manage that, I guess, for lack of a better word. And, you know, one is to sort of make space for people to have separate interests, but then cultivate interests that are overlapping. So like, okay, you're now really interested in religion and I'm not, but why don't we share an interest in cooking or something like that? So to find like some alternative that kind of keeps you together. The alter- another path is to sort of grow together, right? Like if one person gets really into politics and the other person's super not into it, can you sort of find something about politics that you find interesting that kind of keeps you there? Brad's shaking his head. Absolutely not. Well, politics um, is an interesting example, but it's probably a lot easier with like other pursuits. But yeah, yes, I, I don't I'm know why kidding. that one came to mind, but yeah, like because it is know. it's such a it's such a common story, at least in. Um, I was going to say in like in in more like Western Buddhism circles, but I, I now that I think about it, I know people where this has happened across the board, where like one partner gets more involved in a spiritual path, and then they like meet someone at a retreat, or which is so antithetical to all <laughs> the teachings of these spiritual paths, right? Like, which is its own um, kind of paradox, and life is very complicated and complex, but. Um, yeah, but then like they meet someone at that retreat or something, and then because it's a honeymoon period and it's novelty and you're sharing this new interest, next thing you know, like you're in love with someone else, and then it's kind of this convenient thing where it's like, oh, we grew apart because of religion, but it's like, did you or like are you just chasing novelty? Yeah, and I think that kind of gets to an earlier point, which is how important it is to have novel, exciting, new, you know, various experiences together with your partner. Because if you're off doing that with not your partner, that is like those novel experiences tend to be really connecting. And if you're not feeling connected to your partner and you're having this exciting, intriguing experience with somebody else, it is a risk factor for for losing interest in your relationship. And, and you know, if you are committed to staying in your relationship, you want to protect yourself against that. And it's not that you shouldn't have interesting experiences outside of your relationship, but it's more both and. Like, can you also have these connecting, interesting novel experiences together with your partner? Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I could imagine it's equally suffocating to be in a relationship where like you both have to have the same passions and interests at the same time. And um, I'm sure that like really stresses out the significant other. Something that I did before I knew you and I was less wise and mature is I would like, I had this like romantic vision of like Caitlin reading like the same books as me and discussing them. So like, I'd always be like, we have to read this book together. And of course, like she would never read them. And eventually she's like, I still love you, but like, just stop. Like, it's okay if you discuss the books with someone else, like that's totally fine. And sure enough, like the minute I stopped bugging her to read the same books as me, she started asking me for book recommendations. And like, now she reads all the same books. Like the same thing happened with running. Like when we first met, I was so into running and I'm like, you got to try it. You got to try it. And like, after four years of bugging her, I finally, I'm just like, fuck it. She's not going to be a runner. I can still love her. And like two months later, she started running. And now the joke is like, Caitlin runs and I don't run anymore. Um, so like there's its own like very zen right? And like what you yeah. push for pushes back equally hard. Um, but I was probably like really annoying during yeah. the period when I'm like, oh, like, are you sure you don't want to read this book? Like it might be good for us to talk about the same book. 
Well, just just so people don't think that that is automatically going to happen. I have the same dynamic with my husband where I I'm such a bibliophile and he was really into reading when we first met and like life happened and I work read for work and he does not. And he's like, I don't have time to read books and I don't want to read the same books that you want to read. Like that's not of interest to me. And I have given up and he does not read those books, but we have other <laughs> things that we share together and that is okay. So it's not But I like, think that's like a know. really important point because I know people who I care about um quite a bit and, and in their relationships, like they would view that as like a real big problem. And I think this is where like the false expectations are so um damning which is like your partner should be whatever you want them to be in the moment you want them to be those things. And they should read your mind and have your interests. Totally. And I think like, well, staying in an abusive relationship or settling is equally as bad as exiting a relationship too early. My, my gestalt is that there's more exiting relationships too early. I could be wrong. Um, but amongst like our generation of like, what are, what are we geriatric millennials and millennials? Cause we grew up with like, our parents telling us like we should have everything we want and dream for and we're the best and we're special and um, every need will be met. And then I think it left a lot of people like ill-prepared for, for, um, for marriage. I think like one of the most important things from your work when I first came across it years ago is just like, yes, you have like a nice, compassionate, lovey-dovey tone, but like you're also pretty clear that like being in a relationship can be work. It's very fulfilling work but it's not always pleasurable work. Yeah. And and it's, it's similar to how you and Steve talk about, you know, self-care and, you know, peak performance. Like you have to show up even when it's hard, but also try to find ways to make it more appealing and inviting and fun and enjoyable, right? Because it is, you know, life is the journey. It's not the outcome, right? We're in it, in the journey. So yes, it is important to show up and, and, try to connect even when you're feeling grumpy, not every moment, not every day, but like more often than not. And can you find ways to enjoy doing the work so that the work becomes self-reinforcing? Yeah. And, and, and then, um, not like trying to solve, solving solvable problems. Cause I think we talk so often in like therapy speak about like, Oh, like you can't fix it. But I feel like there are a lot of things in relationships that like are fairly solvable. Um, so a concrete example that's coming to my mind is, um, was one of like the bigger game changers for our relationship when we were going through, what I would call like a usual rough patch after our first child was born. So maybe it's not even a rough patch. Maybe it's just the patch after your first child was born. <laughs> and Caitlin was like getting really frustrated at me that I wasn't doing my part to keep the apartment clean. Thank God we only lived in like a two bedroom apartment then it would have been disaster in our house now. And I think that her value on a clean apartment was so much higher than mine. And she would see a mess where I wouldn't like, actually like what she would look at a counter and be like, that's messy. And I'd be like, that seems fine. <laughs> um, and like, it was literally as simple as instead of having a professional cleaner come once a month, we had them come once a week. And like, I wrote one extra article every two months to cover the cost. Yeah. And that was it. And like that problem completely went away, but that's because like, it wasn't about like, you know, so often, I guess what I'm trying to say is so often you hear like, it's never about whether or not the counter is clean. There's always something underneath it. 
But sometimes it's actually about like whether or not the counter is Sometimes clean. a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think like, again, it's, it's paradox because sometimes it's not just like sometimes you shouldn't stay in a relationship. Um, but I think so many of like these truisms that we hear, there's just so much more nuance to these things. There's so much more nuance. And I think we don't get curious enough. Like, is it just a cigar? Is it just a clean countertop? Or is it something bigger than that? And to be curious together with our partner, like, oh, you seem really upset. This seems so small. Not why are you so upset? But why? Why are you so upset? Right? There's a tone difference there. There's a- and then to trust your partner, if your partner's like, I just had a really rough day, I had nothing to do with you. Because then like another really like shitty cycle is like, oh, like, are you, are you being honest with me? And it's like, just let me have a fucking rough day. Like, it's not all about you always. And I think like, that's another common trap that so many of us have probably like, um, floundered our way into. Yeah, I'm guilty of that one. I'm like, are you sure you're not mad at me? (laughs) It's true, though. It's hard. I mean, our minds are such storytelling machines, and our partner is such a victim of that. And I think to remember that, that sometimes we come up with a clever story that makes perfect sense to us, and it does not make sense to our partner. And then the, the skill is figuring out how to communicate where your stories differ and how to craft a shared story that makes sense to both of you. Love it. Well, that seems like a great place to wrap up. Um, Listeners, we will come back next week for part two. The topics that I wanted to talk about, but that we didn't get to were around boundary setting when people don't necessarily respect those boundaries and not just in intimate relationships, but with friends, with colleagues, with parents, with in-laws. And then also just some tips for when to engage with someone with a different viewpoint than you versus when there's a true values misalignment and it doesn't make sense to continue engaging. I think that we see this so much in today's political environment where people are like, oh, like, well, you just can't listen to anyone else. And it's like, no, like you literally have a different worldview than I do. Um, It's like trying to evaluate reality with someone that is in acute psychosis. It's just not possible on the one hand, whereas on the other hand, I think a lot of people just immediately shut down to anyone that doesn't say what they want to hear. And there's got to be like a way to mine that gap. So if it's all right with you, those are the two topics I want to explore. Listeners, if you enjoyed this, come back next week for those two topics. In the meantime, um, sign up for Yael's newsletter, Relational. We'll provide a link in the show notes. Uh, Steve and I and Chris like Yael's work so much. We're hosting it through the Growth Equation. So it is the utmost endorsement. Um, We feel that our wheelhouse is excellence, sustainable mastery, peak performance. And relationships are such a huge part of that. But isn't it great to find someone with so much more expertise in this part? So we don't want to overwhelm you with newsletters. That's why it's separate. It's twice a month. It's called Relational. It'll be in the show notes. Um, Highly recommend. If you enjoyed this conversation, you'll love the newsletter. Uh, Yael, thank you. And I'm glad that I was able to rope you in for another week of this. I'm so excited to talk again. Thank you so much. It was so fun. 